due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, ladies and germs and everything in between. Guess who's back, 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 back again. Two trailer park girls go round the house. All right, never mind. I'm going to just stop. Do you think Eminem will sue us? No, probably not. He sued Napster, not us. But we are back with part two. It had to be broken up into two parts because of the disgusting, torturous nature of this case. So we wanted to bring back to you part two. And start into the 90s, when Jeffrey's killings were really ramped up. We last left our boy Jeff when he got his own apartment in Milwaukee. Dun, dun, dun. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have lived through that in this era, where there's social media everywhere, Twitter would have been ablaze, memes, everything that came out of just this Netflix series. And he said his killing spree in the 90s ramped up so dramatically. To the point where this guy having access to his own place is honestly terrifying. May 14th, 1990. He moves out of his grandma's house into this 924 North 25th Street, apartment 213. Bringing Anthony Sears' mummified head and genitals with him, mind you. He had a nice little setup with a one bedroom and a kitchen. But he has neighbors and all kinds of people around him. And he doesn't seem to care. As we said, having the slightest bit of independence dramatically escalated his killing spree. In the span of 15 months, Dahmer killed 12 men. I'll read their names quickly and I'll get into a little detail about each of them and what he did to them. May 20th, 1990, Raymond Smith, 33 years old. June 1990, Edward W. Smith, 28 years old. September 1990, Ernest Miller, 22 years old. September 24th, 1990, David C. Thomas, 23 years old. February 18th, 1991, Curtis Strader, 18 years old. April 7th, 1991, Errol Lindsay, 19 years old. May 24th, 1991, Anthony Tony Hughes, age 31. May 27th, 1991, Konarak Synthosimphone, 14 years old. June 30th, 1991, Matt Turner, 20 years old. July 5th, 1991, Jeremiah Weinberger, 23 years old. July 15th, 1991, Oliver Lacey, 23 years old. July 19th, 1991, Joseph Braidhoft, 25 years old. In those 15 months, Dahmer also did plenty of experimenting with the bodies of his victims. In that apartment, which, mind you, was a tenement with neighbors and multiple other people living in fairly close quarters, Dahmer is committing unimaginable acts of cruelty and just awful behavior. At one point, Dahmer even lured another man to his apartment and wasn't able to kill him. 
he was drunk and accidentally sucked down the drink laden with sedatives intended for consumption by his victim. When he awoke the following day, he discovered the man had stolen several articles of his clothing, 300 bucks, and a watch. Dahmer admitted that he did some seriously unfathomable things with the bodies of those 12 victims in apartment 213. I'm going to issue another trigger warning here because it's pretty gross, and I'm reading this all in kind of a list. Okay. He boiled Raymond Smith's legs, arms, and pelvis in a steel kettle with Soilex, which allowed him to rinse the bones in the sink and try and preserve them. He put Edward Smith's skeleton in his freezer for several months in the hopes that it wouldn't retain moisture and he could do what he wanted with the bones. Freezing the skeleton, however, did not actually remove the moisture, as bones don't work that way. His skeleton was acidified several months later. Dahmer actually tried to keep his skull, but accidentally destroyed it when he placed it in the oven to dry, a process that caused the skull to explode. He killed Ernest Miller after feeding him two sleeping pills by slashing his carteroid artery with the same knife he used to dissect his victim's bodies. Miller bled to death within a few minutes of that cut, and Dahmer then posed the nude body for various suggestive Polaroid pictures before placing it in his bathtub with acid for dismemberment. Dahmer repeatedly kissed and talked to the severed head while he was dismembering the remainder of the body. He wrapped Miller's heart, biceps, and portions of his flesh from the legs in plastic bags and placed them in the fridge for later eventual consumption. Three weeks later, Dahmer met David Thomas. He invited him to his apartment for a few drinks with additional money on an offer that he would pose for some photographs. Dahmer later told police that after giving Thomas a drink laden with sedatives, he did not feel attracted to him, but he was afraid to allow him to leave in case he would be angry over having been drugged. Therefore, he strangled him and dismembered his body, intentionally retaining no body parts since he wasn't attractive to him, which is just awful. He photographed the dismemberment process and retained those photographs, which later aided in Thomas's identification for the authorities once Dahmer was arrested. Dahmer actually developed a hobby of taking photographs during the process and keeping them in his apartment. Again, horrifying. I found this interesting. There was a period where, after he killed David Thomas, during the latter months of 1990 and beginnings of 1991, Dahmer didn't kill anyone for almost five months, and he later would claim that he frequently complained of feelings of anxiety and depression to his probation officer throughout 1990, with frequent references to his sexuality, his solitary lifestyle, and financial difficulties as being his main catalyst for his depression. But it kept him from killing people, ironically enough. That's what he claimed, at least, that during that time he wasn't motivated to kill people, more so that he was just depressed. From October 1990 to February 1991, Dahmer was inactive in his killing spree. However, finally, the compulsion man overcame him, and he killed again. He drugged Curtis Strotter, cuffed his hands behind his back, and then strangled him to death with a leather strap. He then dismembered Curtis Strotter, retaining the young man's skull, hands, and genitals, and photographing each stage of the dismemberment process. Shortly thereafter, Dahmer lured Errol Lindsay to his apartment, where he drugged him and, for the first time, attempted to keep a victim alive. 
He did this by drilling a hole in his skull and pouring hydrochloric acid into it. According to Dahmer, Lindsay awoke after this experiment, which Dahmer had conceived in the hopes of inducing a permanent, unresistant, submissive state, almost like a zombie. And Errol Lindsay came out of that state and said, I have a headache. What time is it? In response to this, Dahmer drugged him again and strangled him to death. He decapitated Lindsay and kept his skull. On May 24th, 1991, Dahmer met 31-year-old aspiring model Tony Hughes at a nightclub. I want to take a moment to say this was the saddest part of this whole thing for me. I was crushed watching the series because Tony Hughes was deaf, and they did make a pretty good point to emphasize that they did a whole episode almost about him and his murder, which was just so unbelievably sad because they already talked about his search for companionship and somebody to care for him, and he was gay and in the nightclub scene with a couple other friends and met Jeff Dahmer, who took a liking to him, liked that he was polite and nice. And they even made it seem like at one point in the show, I don't know the accuracy of this, they made it seem like he almost regretted having to kill Tony. He didn't want to at first because he did feel like there was some sense of companionship there. But inevitably, again, his desires kind of overcame him. He was lured back to Dahmer's apartment with the same thing, offered a pose for money, for photographs, and he was drugged into an unconscious state before Dahmer again tried injecting hydrochloric acid into his skull in an effort to render him submissive. On this occasion, the drilling and injection unfortunately proved fatal. Tony Hughes sadly died during an experiment attempting to lobotomize him, which is unimaginably horrifying to me and something I can't even really process. But with Dahmer, we've seemed to notice things only get worse. His next murder was also unbelievably tragic and only took place three days later. A Laotian teenager named Conorak Synthasamphone was lured back with an offer of cash for some lewd photography. Before Synthasamphone fell unconscious, Dahmer led the boy into his bedroom, where he later claimed the body of Tony Hughes, whom Dahmer had only killed three days prior, was lying naked on the floor. Dahmer believed that Synthasamphone saw the body, yet didn't react because the bloated corpse was just a blur to him, likely because of the effects of the sleeping pills he'd taken. Dahmer attempted to do the same thing in the fashion he had with Tony Hughes, in drilling a hole and attempting to lobotomize Conorax and Thosomphone. Dahmer then drank a few beers, hanging out alongside his victim's lifeless body, before apparently briefly falling asleep, and then waking up, noticing that this guy was still passed out next to him, and then leaving to go get a couple drinks at a local bar. So the early morning hours of May 27th, the next day, Dahmer's returning home to his apartment, and he finds this young kid sitting naked on the corner of 25th and State Street, right around the corner from his apartment, talking frantically in Lao, with three freaked-out young women standing right next to him. Dahmer approached and told the women that he and Synthosomphone were dating and that it was his 19-year-old boyfriend and that he was drunk and he was going to take him home because he had just gotten too fucked up. They stopped him initially and explained that they had called police and that he wasn't taking him home and that clearly he wasn't just drunk and something was wrong. 
However, when police arrived, they, as opposed to reading the situation, they accompanied Dahmer and his victim back into the apartment under the pretense that they were in a relationship based on nude photographs Dahmer had taken of him only a few hours prior. So he showed them these photographs, and they believed that because of that, they were in a relationship. Now, part of me thinks that they probably just didn't want to get involved. They saw there was gay activity, something going on, and they were just like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it, but he's your problem type thing. 100%. You know what boggles my mind? Time and time and time again, we see Jeffrey Dahmer end up in positions where he's being confronted by police or being confronted by authority. Like when he murdered the first young man, he had him in his trunk and he got pulled over by the police. And he was able to talk his way out of it, saying that the bags of this young man's body in his back seat were a deer carcass, all cut up that he was disposing of. But what is mind-boggling to me is I think a lot of what happened here was blatant homophobia from the cops. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to touch it. You're gay. You stay out the way. That kind of thing. But also, how was Jeffrey Dahmer so cool, calm, and collected every single time he spoke to authorities? Yeah, and it seemed to happen pretty frequently. I mean, this guy's had many interactions with the police where you're like, what the There's definitely no excuse for this one, though, because this man was bleeding from the head naked. Definitely. Well, Connor X and Thassenphone unfortunately died after officers John Balserzak and Joseph Gabrish led him back into Dahmer's apartment and told the women who'd found him and called them to butt out, shut the hell up, and not interfere with police business, end quote. I wonder if after the fact they could sue those police for, like, gross misconduct. I know they faced some type of reprimand when Dahmer was captured for a period of time, but I don't know necessarily that they were convicted of anything or wrongdoing of any type, which is crazy. But upon the departure of the officers, Dahmer injected hydrochloric acid again into Synthosomphone's brain. On the second occasion, it proved fatal. The following day, May 28th, Dahmer took a few days leave from work to devote himself to the dismemberment of the bodies of Synthosomphone and Hughes. He kept both victims' skulls. On June 30th, Dahmer traveled to Chicago, and he had what he would consider, I'm sure, a successful trip up there. He met a young man named Matt Turner, who's 20, at a bus station. Turner accepted Dahmer's offer to drive to Milwaukee, which is only an hour, I believe, an hour and a half away, for a professional photo shoot. At the apartment, Dahmer drugged, strangled, and dismembered Matt Turner and placed his head and internal organs in separate plastic bags in the freezer. He later cooked and ate parts of Matt Turner on his own admission. Five days later, on July 5th, Dahmer lured 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger from a Chicago bar to his apartment on the premise of spending the weekend with him. He drugged Weinberger and twice injected boiling water through his skull sending him into a coma, which he died from two days later. On July 15th, 10 days later, Dahmer bumped casually into Oliver Lacey. Dahmer intended to prolong the time he spent with Lacey while he was alive, he later said. So after unsuccessfully attempting to render Lacey unconscious with chloroform, 
He strangled him, and then Dahmer had sex with his corpse before dismembering him. He placed Oliver Lacey's head and heart in the refrigerator and his skeleton in the freezer. Less than a week later, Dahmer lured 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoft to his apartment after he was fired for calling off to dispose of Oliver Lacey's body. Braidhoff was strangled and left lying on Dahmer's bed covered with a sheet for two days. On July 21st, Dahmer removed those sheets to find the head covered in maggots. He decapitated the body, cleaned the head, and placed it in the refrigerator. He would later acidify Braidhoff's torso along with those of two other victims killed in the previous month. Did their race matter to you? No, their race didn't matter to me. The first, the first two... Young men were white. The third young man was American Indian. The fourth and fifth were Hispanic. So, no, race had nothing to do with it. It was just their looks. Was there something sexual in the dismemberment of the bodies for you? As time went on, uh, yes, I, I did get a, there was a sexual part, part to that. I started saving the, the skeletons and preserving other parts. And uh, one thing led to another. It took it took more and more uh, deviant type behaviors to satisfy uh, my urges, and so it just uh, spiraled out of control. I just can't fathom that this dude went unchecked, being this blatant and open and he's cutting up and dismembering bodies and there's a smell rank throughout his place and the police encountered him as we said several times and nothing came of it he's just living normally amongst other people in a fucking apartment i think that's an important piece that i've always wondered especially about Dahmer's case, he does live in an apartment and let these people not make noise. I know the neighbors heard rumblings, but what about screaming? I know Jeffrey Dahmer liked to watch horror movies, namely The Exorcist, but what about the screaming? One of these people had to have screamed. Oh, you would think some or fought or done something to make somebody be like, what the fuck was that? If I heard one of my neighbors screaming, I mean, my dumb ass is probably checking it out myself, but I'm calling the cops. Although, if you watch in the Netflix series, one thing that they very specifically pushed on and highlighted the fact that his one neighbor, what's her name, Linda, called multiple times, called the police, told them, this is the third time or fifth time or X time I've called you, and I'm hearing or smelling or something. She and several neighbors complained about the smell to the building manager. She claimed to have called the police multiple times and them just not having done anything about it. Basically just let it go or didn't follow up and said that was the best they could do. Let's chat a little bit about his inevitable arrest, which came shortly thereafter, and his confession, which you can listen to his confession online. I didn't want to spend too much time dwelling on it because he delves into a lot of the Same themes we're talking about right now. They ask him questions about why he did what he did, what his fantasies were, what his processes were, some of these people were. 
If you're interested, go and listen to it. We've played enough clips of him, I think. I don't want to sit here and just continue to replay these things. You can go and watch yourselves. But I encourage everybody to watch the interviews with Jeffrey Dahmer. They are fascinating and horrifying, but definitely worth taking the time if you're interested in this case. And we'd love to talk about it with you. But again, Dahmer was already in 1991 kind of pushing his luck. Conorak having just escaped. The police have been in his apartment. And his neighbors are calling the cops. Everybody's aware that this guy's doing something weird. His act was kind of becoming stale, too. Several men in the gay community managed to identify him and his attempts to pick up men in bars and nightclubs as being pretty played out. He basically was going about the same process with everybody. And people catching on. He at one point offered three men one night money to take some photos after having a few drinks with them. One of the trio of men... 32-year-old Tracy Edwards, agreed to accompany him to his apartment. Once he entered Dahmer's apartment, Edwards noted a foul smell and several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which Dahmer claimed to be using to clean bricks. Dahmer allegedly brandished a knife at one point and told Edwards he was going to cut out his heart, menacing him with the idea that he was going to kill him under the influence of drugs. So Edwards, although he's fucked up, realizes at that point he's in danger and decided he was going to either jump out a window or run through the front door and try to get back to the street. So at the next available opportunity, Edwards said he needed to use the bathroom. And then he asked if they could sit in the living room where there was supposedly air conditioning. I'd give him a ton of credit for in that moment of just pure terror, coming up with a way to get out and get at least somewhat free of Dahmer's bedroom. Dahmer consented, and the pair of them walked to the living room where Edwards exited to the bathroom. Inside the living room, Edwards waited until he observed Dahmer having kind of a momentary lapse of concentration before he asked to use the bathroom again. When he rose from the couch, he noted Dahmer wasn't holding the handcuffs, and Edwards punched him in the face, knocked him off balance, and ran out the front door. Unbelievable, honestly. The horror that that dude must have been under in that state of mind. I can't fathom being somebody's potential victim, first of all. And then he had the presence of mind to leave, although he was on drugs, track down police and lead them to Dahmer's apartment, where he was sitting on the couch just drinking a beer. When officers arrived at apartment 213, Dahmer invited them all inside and acknowledged that he had placed handcuffs on Edwards, although he offered no explanation as to why he had done so. At that point, Edwards told officers that Dahmer had also brandished a large knife somewhere on him and that it happened in the bedroom. Dahmer made no comment, didn't say anything to that revelation, indicating to one of the officers that the key to the handcuffs was somewhere in the bedside dresser and that he would be able to get the handcuffs off of him at that point. As Officer Mueller entered the bedroom, there were two officers, Mueller and Ralph were the two guys. Dahmer attempted to pass Mueller to retrieve the key himself, whereupon the second officer, Ralph, informed him to back off. In the bedroom, Mueller noted there was a large knife indeed beneath the bed. He saw an open drawer, which upon closer inspection, he noticed contained dozens, if not hundreds, of Polaroid pictures many of which were of human bodies in various stages of dismemberment. Mueller noted the decor, which indicated that they had been taken in the same apartment in which they were standing. So these pictures are from inside the apartment. 
Mueller walked into the living room to show them to his partner and uttered the words, these are for real. Routh and Mueller immediately arrested Dahmer, of course, because of Tracy Edwards and then because of what they found. And that led to a search of his apartment for the purposes of investigating the crime scene. This was the beginning of the unraveling of the whole nightmare for Dahmer's family, the neighbors, and the city of Milwaukee in general. Over the next few weeks, inside his apartment, Milwaukee Police's Criminal Investigation Bureau revealed a total of four severed heads in Dahmer's kitchen. They found a total of seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, found in Dahmer's bedroom and inside a closet. Investigators discovered blood drippings on a tray at the bottom of Dahmer's refrigerator, plus two human hearts, a portion of arm muscle, all of which were wrapped up in plastic bags on shelves. In Dahmer's freezer, investigators discovered an entire torso, plus a bag of human organs and flesh stuck to the ice at the bottom. Elsewhere in apartment 213, and this isn't that big of an apartment, investigators discovered two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and a 57-gallon drum. They found three further dismembered torsos dissolving in an acid solution. A total of 74 Polaroid pictures detailing the dismemberment of Dahmer's victims were found throughout the apartment as well. Most of Dahmer's victims, they realized, had been rendered unconscious prior to their murder, although some had died as a result of having acid or boiling water injected into their brains. As Dahmer had no memory of the murder of his second victim, Stephen Twomey, he was unsure whether he was unconscious when beaten to death, although he did concede it was possible that his viewing of the exposed chest of Twomey while in a drunken stupor may have led him to unsuccessfully attempt to tear Twomey's heart from his chest. Although most of the murders Dahmer committed after having moved into Oxford apartments, ritual posing of victims' bodies in suggestive positions, typically with their chest thrust outwards, prior to dismemberment. So, as we've alluded to, he confessed to these crimes and told detectives about his compulsion to kill and that it had overcome his sanity, basically. So there was no ambiguity. I don't think he necessarily showed any remorse. He'd done it. It was his fault. He was the one who lured them back. None of this is left up for grabs, basically. But his explanation, despite having done this over years, he described the increase of his rate of killing in the two months prior to his arrest, stating that he had been, quote, completely swept along with his compulsion to kill adding it was an incessant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever cost. Someone good-looking, really nice-looking, it just filled my thoughts all day long. He's really boiling this down to his desire to just be with somebody, to keep somebody around, have their body with him. That was his whole motivation, really. On July 25th, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer is charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, he's been charged with 11 more murders committed in Wisconsin. And on September 14th, investigators in Ohio, having uncovered 
hundreds of bone fragments in the woods behind his address to where he had killed Stephen Hicks, his first victim, formally identified two teeth records and a vertebrae with x-ray records of Stephen Hicks. So three days later, he's charged in Ohio with Hicks's murder as well. He's been charged for a total of 16 of the 17 murders. He was not charged with the attempted murder of Tracy Edwards, nor with the murder of Stephen Twomey. Uh, he wasn't charged with Twomey's murder because the Milwaukee County District Attorney only brought charges where murder could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And Dahmer had no memory of actually committing the particular murder, for which no physical evidence of the crime existed, because he had disposed of the body. At a scheduled preliminary hearing, Dahmer pled guilty, but insane, to the 15 counts that he was charged with. Let's talk a little bit about his trial and sentencing and eventually what happened to him. His trial only lasted two weeks. Really, it was focused around the idea that his attorney named Gerald Boyle was trying hard to convince the jury that he was insane, that he had no ability to control himself, his desires overcame his sense of reality, and that when he was in this type of madness, he wasn't really able to control what was going on around him. He just kind of acted as opposed to thinking through his actions. There was plenty of evidence to the fact that he did this. It was not open for debate. His apartment was the fucking crime scene. So district attorneys really just continued to harp on the fact that it was him. Whatever he claims his reasoning for it, he's committed these awful, horrifying acts without any remorse, has not explained them and doesn't give any reason for it other than that he wanted to keep them around. And that's not good enough, obviously. On February 14th, both attorneys delivered their closing arguments to the jury. Each attorney was allowed to speak for exactly two hours, no more. Defense attorney Gerald Boyle repeated over and over again the testimony of health professionals, almost all of whom had agreed that Dahmer was afflicted with some mental illness, whether it be compulsorily driven to kill or that his sexual desires led to his cannibalism. It also is a counterbalance, right? Because the more in their mind someone is, the more present they are, the more you'd think, okay, he has the capability to do all this, right? To dismember a body, to be under control, to talk to police, to talk to neighbors, to be able to somehow control what's going on around him. He must be in his right frame of mind. But at the same time, could anybody in the right state of mind commit these absolutely heinous, over-the-top murders? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's hard to fathom. So I see both sides of it. But at the same time, you have to hold responsibility somewhere. At this point, our definition of insanity is, was he aware of the difference between right and wrong and able to control himself to that point? So again, Boyle continuously referred to the testimony of mental health professionals. They all agreed he was afflicted with something, said that Dahmer's and compulsive killings had been a result of a sickness he discovered, not chose. Boyle basically tried to portray Dahmer as lonely and profoundly ill and so out of control 
he could not conform his conduct anymore, quote, end quote. Trying to say that because of his isolation and because of his issues with abandonment, he's lashing out at other people and at society as a whole. Following the defense's argument, District Attorney Michael McCann delivered his closing argument for the prosecution, describing Dahmer as a sane man in full control of his actions who simply strove to avoid detection, which also makes sense. McCann described Dahmer as a calculating individual who killed to control his victims and retain their bodies, quote, merely to afford himself a prolonged period of sexual pleasure, end quote. McCann argued that by pleading guilty but insane to the charges, Dahmer was seeking to escape responsibility for his crimes. Again, I see both sides of that. I see that he must have been in some capacity able to understand what he was doing and control himself as a result, but also that anybody with this lascivious, awful nature must have been corrupted or just off in some capacity or another. I don't know how to describe it, just not normal. But in the terms of the criminal proceeding, it's about whether you're able to sustain right and wrong. You knew what you were doing. You were in control of your body and your mind at the time enough to be able to say what you did was right or wrong, and you knew what you were doing was wrong. As a result, Dahmer was sentenced to life imprisonment plus 10 years on the first two counts. The remaining 13 counts carried a mandatory life sentence of imprisonment plus 70 years. The death penalty unfortunately, was not an option for Judge Graham, who presided over this court case, to consider at the penalty phase, as Wisconsin had actually abolished capital punishment in 1853. So it hasn't been an option there for a while, but it added up to being 999 years behind bars for all 15 charges that were levied against him. That's kind of the thing that it mystifies me a little bit, and you guys feel free to weigh on this, but 999 years. At that point, I'll just say life. Yeah, we've talked about that before. It's like never getting out of jail ever, no matter what you do. Yeah, I'll never understand that, at least. Like, this dude's not Jesus. He's not getting out of jail. What's the point? But not for me to decide. So Dahmer's sentenced, as we said, to life without the possibility of parole his entire life, plus about another 12 generations after him, would not have gotten out of jail. But in prison, Dahmer becomes kind of a celebrity. They did these prison interviews. They did a lot. As His dad wrote a book. A couple of his victims sued his family and sued him for the charges of having, of course, done what he did. So he was a media sensation. He's living in the media at this point. He's become a cult figure almost to some people and like a horrifying figure to others. Dahmer's life is basically over outside, but I liked how they highlighted this in the series. He's getting sent money. He's getting sent letters. He's getting TV interviews, requests for interviews. At some point, he allegedly becomes a born-again Christian, I guess renounces his evil ways, doesn't have any problem saying what he did was wrong. He's already in jail for life, so at this point, what does he have to lose? But that brought him some ire inside the prison system as well, because people, of course, saw him getting famous and getting benefits, really, from having killed 17 young men. 
which is unfathomable to think about, but there are people out there who do find fascination in serial killers. Ted Bundy got married and had a kid, allegedly, while he was in jail. A lot of these people do. They develop a following. Unfortunately, it's just the nature of humanity to be fascinated by this. Dahmer, who is kind of off-putting, for lack of a better word, would come on to people, would say inappropriate things, do inappropriate things. Kind of like he was the class clown in school, he kind of became the class clown of jail. So he was acting out, doing things that people didn't necessarily want or like. One guy who noticed him but didn't like him was Christopher Scarver. And Chris Scarver later claimed that he just couldn't stand the guy and that what happened inevitably was a result of that. On the morning of November 28th, 1994, Jeffrey Dahmer left his cell to go to an assigned work detail, cleaning a gym in the prison and just doing general cleanup. Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson, who was a convicted murderer, having killed his wife, I believe pregnant wife, and Chris Scarver. The three of them were left unsupervised in the showers of the prison gym for about 20 minutes. At this time, Scarver took the advantage of having the time that he had and at approximately 8.10 a.m., Dahmer was discovered on the floor of the bathroom of the gym, suffering from traumatic head wounds, having been severely bludgeoned around the head and face with a 20-inch metal bar used to lift weights. His head had also been repeatedly struck against the wall in the assault. Dahmer was still alive at that time, so he was rushed to a nearby hospital but he was pronounced dead from traumatic head injuries one hour later. Jesse Anderson, who Chris Scarver also did not like, was beaten with the same metal bar and died of his head injuries two days later. That is the end of the life, if not of the story, of Jeffrey Dahmer. Let's talk about a couple questions, guys. Obviously, this is a tragic and just horrifying case, and we're seeing it brought up again in a modern media. I was talking with a friend on Twitter about this, and it was a really fascinating conversation, and I really appreciated her input. Basically, in summation, she said, I don't get the fascination with these types of people. Why is it that America and our society latches on and gets so worked up and captivated by these types of people? She said it's almost exploitation of the victims' families and their suffering. But I replied and said, I think the first thing you have to come with is a sense of sympathy, right? Obviously, we feel terrible for the victims. We want that to be noted before anything, that we're not talking about this to glorify it or to make it seem right or normal but really because it's so abnormal and something we never really see. There are plenty of serial killers in history, but Dahmer took it to another level. I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think it is about the fascination of serial killers, first and foremost, but of especially the most capitulating ones, the ones who are really keeping us up at night, the Jeff Dahmers, the Ted Bundys, the Ed Geens, people who just did these awful things what is it what do you guys think i think personally the need for answers is something that motivates me to learn more 
I don't think we will have answers for many of the cases we discuss. And obviously, I can't speak to the broader population, their interest, but I also think it's the car crash on the side of the road that you can't look away from. We're drawn to these types of things for I don't know what reason. I love that you said that, Jules, because I think that's part of it for me, definitely. I want to know what went wrong or what made this happen, in a sense. And like you said, we'll ever know that. We can't put a finger on that and say, that's what it was. It's frightening to me, but also something I want to hear more about because A, I want to know what it was. B, hopefully prevent this from ever happening again. Lise, what do you think? This is a question I ask myself all of the time. Struggle adequately putting into words what I feel about true crime. I don't like saying I love it. I think the closest to what I personally feel is fascination. So I don't know. I think Jules is right. It's a rubbernecking idea where if you see the car burning on the side of the road, you want to know what happens. I think part of it's human instinct and I grapple with my own interests in true crime and fascination with true crime because I do try to think of the victims. I do try to think, what if it was my family member? Would I want a TV show of reliving that horror? I think about that too. If my brother or my family, something happened, I'm not sure I'd want to watch the Netflix special about the guy who did it. And he's played by Evan Peters or some famous actor. Very gripping to think of it that way. Yeah. And I try to keep that in mind. And I know we have a true crime podcast, so almost everything I say right now is kind of irrelevant because this is something we do as well. But I think about it, you know, back in the day and still in some countries, they gather for public executions. Where does that come from? I think of ancient Rome. They're like, let's all get together and watch these guys kill each other for sport. I mean, I'm watching the NFL yesterday and two guys in the same five minutes of the same game both go down with head injuries and the one guy gets carted off the field. And you're like, thoughts and prayers with his family. This is terrible. I feel so bad. Okay, he's off the field. On to the next play. Our society has some weird fascination with the idea of violence and death. And I won't say her name, but I really appreciate her perspective as being like, it doesn't interest me. It just kind of weirds me out. And I think there are plenty of people out there like that. And I think that's a totally okay perspective to have. Absolutely. And I'm not saying I'm obsessed with every show I watch is about true crime. I'm sure there's studies on it somewhere because obviously we're not the only people consuming this media. So I'd be really interested to see where exactly that comes from. Well, I would, at least I just wanted to delve into that for a moment, how you and I are both, and you probably more so are interested in this. And it is a fascination of ours, but where that comes from, I don't know. For example, Zach isn't on here regularly talking about this with us and you spend a lot of time with him. It's not his favorite thing. Yeah. To your point though, Lisa, I think that that's good. I think we need to balance. If Zach wanted to talk true crime with me after I got off of our recording session tonight, I'd be like, nah. But that's the thing is, can talk about it endlessly. It's really all I talk about with people. Well, but you have other interests too. I mean, there are private investigators and police detectives. There are people who literally consume this shit, whether it be by choice or by obsession or whatever it is, for a living. That kind of ties back to my next question about Jeffrey Dahmer. Was he insane? Was he compulsed and sick? Was he 
just outright evil, all of the above. Was he something like that? And should his deviance and completely outlandish behavior have been considered a mitigating or contributing factor in his claim of insanity? Does that fit the bill? I think he had some wires that were miscrossed. That's the technical term for it, Jules. Yeah, that's the medical definition. If I'm being honest, I think he only claimed insanity because his lawyers were like, this is what we got to do. We always hear mental health school shooters. There must be something wrong with them. It must be a mental health issue, whatever, which very well could be true. But I think when we talk about the insanity defense, we have to separate it from being mentally unwell because the insanity defense, like you so adequately described, is at the time of what you did, knowing if it was right or wrong and doing it anyways or whatever. Obviously, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He did it again and again and again. He tried to cover it up. He did cover it up. I think at the end there, he got kind of lazy. So I think by the definition of insanity defense, no, I don't think he was insane. And I don't think he would say he was insane. I think the only reason that would have ever come up was his lawyer saying, look, this is your only option to not get fried immediately with the death penalty or something of that nature. No death penalty in that state, but exactly, you're fucked if you don't do this, basically. I am kind of curious with how open and honest Jeffrey Dahmer was that he even took it to trial because it almost seems like it was unnecessary because he was already admitting to everything anyway. So what does it matter? You know you're going away somewhere for a long time, if not forever. Why put the families through a trial? I don't know if that was just another form of control for him in a way he felt powerful where, look, you're going to have to sit and listen to me and my lawyers tell you word by word, scene by scene, everything I did to your loved ones. Enjoy, because I have the power. So no, I don't think he was insane. I don't think he thought he was insane in the way the law says that he would be insane. I do think, like Jules said, that there are hella screws gone, missing, not even just loose. They just weren't there. Was he a product of his environment? I'm not sure. I think mental health issues, real legitimate mental health issues, and you're more likely to be the victim of a crime with mental health. But in his case, I do think there were some mental health issues that ran in his family. Maybe he wasn't formally diagnosed with or ever diagnosed with, but could have had. There was that loneliness, the desire for power. And I do think sociopathy and psychopathy, those are things that you're bred to be in a way. I think there was definitely something up with his brain. I don't think he was insane. I like it. I agree. So I guess kind of a follow-up to that is, does he get to claim insanity if he has the wherewithal and cognizance to know what he was doing and play these murders out over several weeks? Should he have even had the right to do that? Because that's kind of contradictory to the idea of what the insanity defense is. Probably not. That's what I'm thinking. If I were the judge, I'd look at that and be like, you really can't claim that. You did this over weeks and over years, decades. But I guess anyone can claim anything. It's will it go through. You know what I mean? I think the judge probably looked at it and was like, yeah, good luck. You're going to make a fool out of yourself. It's going to be a circus. But I do think, unfortunately, the way our law works is kind of like you can do whatever you want. Good luck. Didn't Candy Montgomery claim insanity? And she didn't have all of this weird interest in dead animals. She was just a housewife. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, a- anybody can say that. You can come right out and be like, hey, I'm crazy as a motherfucker. And here, I'll tell you why. I think it depends how we're defining the term insane. I think if we're saying insane as you have no control over anything, I don't think that's the best way to classify Dahmer. Right. We're trying to hone down if he can even claim that. Because basically, can he claim insanity when he's not adhering to the definition of insanity by the legal defenses? And if he was not in his right mind and able to control himself at the time of the murders. The thing is, they couldn't claim anything else. What else would they have said? Not guilty. Okay. But one, you admitted everything. If it barks like a dog, it is a dog. You know, I'm guessing that his lawyer was like, this is the only shot we have. We're going with it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think honestly, at that point, he was probably looking at his client and I was like, I can't believe I even have to defend this guy. What can I even say in his defense? And I guess the first thing that would be would be, yeah, he's crazy. That's the only thing I can think. And we've talked about this on the show too. Attorneys have to represent their clients with the full zealousness of the law. You can't half-ass it just because you know the guy's guilty. And plus, he has a family. His dad was actively trying to get him at least psychiatric help. It's not like the attorney can just be like, eh, fuck it. He had to at least try. But it was just curious to me because when I think about the legal definition of insanity, I'm thinking, did he realize what he was doing at the time of the murders? And it seems to me like he very obviously did, considering he continued to do the same thing over and over again. My next question, kind of on that same token, not really. Who else shares some responsibility in this killing spree? His parents, the police, his previous employers, the court system, all the above? Who do we think? Who else should be at least somewhat held responsible for this whole travesty that went on? I think it's really hard to point the finger at anyone besides him. His dad, whether he introduced these thoughts and hobbies as a young child or just kind of fostered them. That's not great parenting, but lots of people have terrible parents and don't become Jeffrey Dahmer. His grandmother, maybe she could have shared some suspicions earlier on. I think that his earlier sentencing and release and, oh, you were a good boy, so you get out early. I think that is problematic and maybe would have deterred some future crimes if we had had a stricter sentence there, but nobody made him do what he did. I agree with that sense, Jules. I absolutely agree. I mean, his dad, especially in his formative years, probably had some pretty weird, and I'm just going to call it weird, honestly. I get that everybody's different in taxidermy and hunting or some people's hobbies, but if my kid is talking about, I want to pick up this dead animal on the side of the road, I'm going to be a little confused, at least confused, if not concerned. Uh, I love that you said confused. Yeah, I'm going to be confused. Like, for what? Do you think that's fascinating? I mean, we can talk about it, but no, we're not going to pick up a dead animal and put it in the car. Well, you have to remember, his dad was in the science field as well. He was. He's a chemist, I believe, yeah. And I think he's the one who was like, if we want to explore this, there's a dead animal on the street. Let's pick it up. And I don't think Jeffrey at first was like, hey, there's a dead animal. I don't either. That's what I'm saying, Lisa. I, like a young kid, I doubt that he was the one who was like, can we pick it up and check it out? I think his dad probably put some of that into him. A hundred percent did because I watched interviews of him talking about it. I think he definitely needs to at least kind of hold the banner for like, dude, you put this in your son's head. It's not something that's necessarily saying, oh, that's going to cause him to kill people down the road. 
but it at least kind of desensitizes him to the idea of death and violence, which unfortunately became very prevalent in his life later on, that he was totally unhinged by the idea of killing somebody. It didn't bother him because he was to death. But Jules, I'm glad you said what you said about the fact that Oh, he's a good kid. We don't want to mess up his life. The military honorably discharged him. A cop let him off when he was driving drunk with a body in the fucking trunk because he just didn't, for whatever reason, think he was a threat. He's been arrested three times for different sexual related crimes. And yet they're like, you know, let's give him a break on this one. I mean, at one point, it was Connor Axe's older brother actually he assaulted and they tried to put it on him and they tried to get him sentenced to a harsher sentence his dad testified and they basically just let him go they were like yeah it's not a recurring theme it's something that happens you know i don't understand people's proclivities i don't pretend to so you know it, it's not something that they want to get too involved in basically is how it seemed and that's horrifying because this is someone's life but the judge just didn't think it was necessary to get too involved because I hate to come back to that gay thing, as they said in this series. I do think that, honestly, that was a big part of it, was that both the police, who also should bear some responsibility, and the court system probably just wanted to turn their heads and look away. They don't want to delve into the fact that this guy's been responsible for a lot of people's disappearances, and we should probably take note. I think I agree with both of you in a sense I don't think his dad's super to blame specifically I think unfortunately a big part of it is he was a product of his own environment I mean his parents had a really fucked up relationship they both left him essentially and he goes back and forth a million times in all of his confessions about the need for control the need to not be alone he didn't want to be left he was left by his mom he was left by his dad you know, everybody who he loved and held dear left him. And then you pair that with his weird obsession with organs and that early sexual gratification he started pairing with that. We see that with all fetishes. I mean, we talked to Lee about that when we had the necrophile series. That stuff starts from an early age and who knows exactly why or what starts that. But when you're that young and that's when your sexuality develop and you're put in front of something odd or deviant or whatever, those things can get paired together somewhere in the wiring in your brains. I do think a hundred thousand percent the police are hugely responsible here. I think there was many missteps, but especially with Conorak, they completely ignored signs in front of their face for no reason other than racism, homophobia, all of this stuff. And I think that was the nice thing that the series kind of drew attention to is that it really was, they just didn't want to deal with it or, oh, this is a bad part of town or, oh, Jeffrey lives in subsidized housing or in a predominantly black building. We're not going to deal with that because of course there's crime here. That kind of mindset, I think the police absolutely should have been held accountable. I don't necessarily think Jeffrey's dad because I think there was a lot of red flags heavily, heavily, heavily missed. I think there was a lot looked over. I watched an interview with Jeffrey Dahmer's dad where he was at his grandma's house and there was a box, a locked box that Jeffrey got from his grandma in the kitchen. And his dad said, what's in the box, Jeffrey? And he said, like, 
dad, leave it alone, whatever. He said it was porn. And Jeffrey's dad was like, I want to see what's in that box. Open that box. And Jeffrey was like, dad, grandma's right there in the kitchen. We're not doing this right now. I'll show you tomorrow. Leave it alone. I'm not doing this. Like, I'm an adult. Let me have my thing. I'm allowed to have privacy, blah, blah, blah. And Jeffrey's dad remembered, like, still trying to push at him to open this fucking box because he had a weird feeling about this box. And Jeffrey kept saying, it's porn, and I don't want to open it in front of grandma. Come to find out, obviously, it wasn't porn in that box. It was a head. There was a head in that box in the kitchen. But when Jeffrey brought it downstairs the next day... He put porn magazines in it, showed it to his dad to make the suspicions go away. But Jeffrey's dad kept saying, I wish I would have made him open that box, but I was horrified to think now looking back what I would have seen. And Jeffrey obviously admitted that it was a head in the box on this fucking table in front of both his grandma and his dad. And so I think there were just little things, not necessarily that exact point, but like you should have got your kid help. You should be paying attention to your kid. You shouldn't be leaving a 17 year old drunk alone in a house. And granted, I don't think Jeffrey Dahmer's dad knew that his mom had left. I think he had an idea that she was planning to leave with his little brother, but I don't think he knew for a fact. Don't think he 100% knew Jeffrey was alone because in the series and then again in some interviews I watched, it seemed like Jeffrey's dad came home, Lionel, and was like, wait, you've been alone this whole time? Where the hell's your mother? Where'd she go? So I think his parents failed miserably they missed a lot of signs and they should have reported some of this shit earlier, especially, you know, as it kept continuing with the alcohol and everything. But I don't necessarily think his dad specifically should be held accountable. Police lock him up. I think they're almost not as responsible. Obviously, you can't say that. They were handed one of his victims and returned him. Yeah. It was one of those things where you look at it now and are like, how did nobody realize first of all that a kid was 14 he was a young kid at 14 i don't care what race ethnicity how mature you are i don't care if you got a fucking chin strap beard on you that's a young kid that's not mistakable as far as i'm concerned did you hear the audio of the neighbor who called the police the 911 call yes yeah, when she calls them back and says, hey, whatever happened with that? And they were like, oh, we sent him back. And she was like, what? Like, why? What? And they were like, oh, yeah, he was old and it was just boyfriend stuff. Yeah, let's play that clip, please. Milwaukee Emergency Operator 71. Okay, hi. Um, this, um, I'm on 25th Estate, and this is young man. He is butt naked. He has been beaten up. He is very bruised up. He can't stand. He's study fall out. He, has, he is butt naked. He has no clothes on. He was really hurt. Police arrived. By this time, Dahmer had returned from his beer run. As he had with police in Bath, Ohio, after his first killing, Dahmer smoothly lied. He told police that Conorak was his gay lover who simply had too much to drink. He brought the cops into his apartment and showed them Polaroids he'd taken of the teen, proof, he said, of their relationship. The police believed the 14-year-old was of legal age and left him behind with Dahmer. They wrote the incident off as a lover's quarrel. Again, Dahmer had been slippery enough to keep his killings a secret. As soon as the cops left, he murdered the boy. The police then called into the dispatcher. The intoxicated Asian naked male was returned to his sober boyfriend. And uh, we're going to be a minute. My partner's going to get de-loused at the station. Glenda Cleveland whose niece and daughter had called 911, 
called police later that night to check on the status of the boy. How was the child? It wasn't a child, it was an adult. Are you sure? Yep. Are you positive? It's all taken care of, ma'am. I agree with you. I think there's multiple opportunities here. And I'm glad you brought that up, especially in Connor X cases. My next question was specifically about that. If the police had multiple opportunities to arrest him and saw him commit multiple sexual crimes in the past, at least on his record, and we hope they had access to records at that time. This is the 90s, not 1950, where there weren't phones. I mean, they could have easily done a background check. What can we say might have been the cause of their negligence in Conorak's death? I think you kind of touched on it. Oh, it's a high crime area, you know, victim of boyfriend stuff and the gay community. And, oh, it's a black neighborhood. We're expecting this to happen over there. And I think part of that is that Dahmer chose his victims as such because he didn't think that they would be pursued as much. I don't know. Tell me what you guys think. I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head with this one. I feel like no matter what the circumstances were, there was going to be some sort of excuse that the police found for not digging further. It didn't hurt Jeffrey's case that he was a white man. I think it really knew how to play people, how to read the scene and get his way. I'm happy that's kind of what the series brings to light is just all of the failings all around. And I think that's something that goes back to your original question, where the fascination comes from. I think the only way to stop history from repeating itself is to learn from it. And I think we've talked about this with serial killers being interviewed and stuff. I think that's a big portion of why you want to get into their brain. Where did this come from? And it's interesting. In all of Jeffrey's interviews, he says, don't blame my parents. It has nothing to do with them. It was all me. But you have to look at the entirety of everything. And I think that's a big fascination with us. I think everyone fucking failed. And this is horrible. And I'm hoping the city of Milwaukee learned from their absolute failure to protect their citizens and to take this fucking guy seriously. And I hope this was a big learning lesson for them and an unfortunate one because it shouldn't have ever had to happen. It's one of those things. And I'm not trying to give any credence here. I think there was a lot that was missed. but. As much as everybody wants to be great at their job and famous and wants to be known for being good at their job, nobody who's a cop wants to catch a case like this. Nobody wants this. This is the type of thing that you only get famous for doing something wrong. There's nothing you can do to make this better. These cops literally just didn't want to get involved, is my thoughts. And it's speculation, but I think anybody in their shoes you know, I don't really, I'm not comfortable with that whole thing anyway. Yeah, but then don't be a cop. I agree, Lise, but I'm just saying, to me, I think part of where their motivation came from. The lack of motivation, you should say. There you go, the lack thereof. But they're just kind of like, hey, something I'm not really comfortable talking about type thing, where you're like, okay, but again, like you said, don't be a cop then. Thank you all for joining us in this dark turn of events that history had to understand because we all know that there's evil in the world. Jeffrey Dahmer is an example of how far gone people can really be. Obviously, everybody has their own insight into his mental state and history, but we talked about it a little bit in the eye for an eye portion. The depths of depravity exist, people, and this is it. But we appreciate everybody bearing with us through this case. It's been, like Lisa said in the beginning here, a doozy. And 
definitely something that, that should never be relived, but should be studied and examined, I believe. Ladies, thank you again for your help and participation in this, as we said, dark, dark turn of events. Thanks for covering it. It's a hard case to get through, but it's one that happened. And I think it's important. They were talking about this on the Dr. Phil episode. But what Dr. Phil was saying is it's human nature to be curious about this stuff. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to cover it. Well, yeah, you want to be sensitive to victims' families. Absolutely, 100%. This is the worst event in some people's lives and some of our nation's history. I mean, this is one of the most prolific, disgusting people that we could probably ever think of. But I think it also brings up there's a whole generation of people who don't really know who he is and what he did. And I think the second we forget about history is when history starts to repeat itself. So I think showing what he did, telling what he did, talking about it, maybe that can help prevent this from happening in the future. So thank you, Matt, for covering it with dignity and grace, because you are Miss United States. I'd have to say April 25th. It's not too hot, not too cold. All you need is a light jacket. Thank you, Lise. Thank you, Jules. I love that movie. Fuck you, Jeffrey Dahmer. And yes, everybody loves Miss Congeniality. I'll quote that shit for days. Thank you, y'all. And rate, review, subscribe. Hit that Patreon. Hit that merch site. Hit that five stars. Tell us what's good. Come on and check everything out with us. You've heard some of our guest hosts. You've seen some of our friends come on this show. We love it. We try and keep it low-key for you, even if we have to talk about Jeffrey fucking Dahmer. Come join us, man. We'd love to have you. Thank you all again. Good night. Good night, everybody.